Hello and welcome to another episode of A Dash of Science. I'm your host, Chris. Each week we get with an expert in their fields to talk about things that people often misunderstand, misquote, or sometimes just don't know at all. Now, we don't always focus on heavy science. Sometimes we just talk about things going on in the media, online, or other such things that are being just misunderstood in general. We always try to approach things with a bit of logic, a bit of reason, and uh, a lot of fact. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome to another great, wonderful, exciting week. Today, as in the day that this podcast releases, is August 21st. August 21st is an awesome and exciting day because we have the Great American Eclipse. Uh, I'm not quite sure why we call it that. I think eclipses are pretty cool and great no matter where they're at, but... You know, today, they're in America, and by America, I mean the United States. So this eclipse is going across all the way from West Coast into, I think it goes into South Carolina, if I recall, uh, over the course of uh, a couple hours. Uh, I do know that you can follow the path uh, at NASA. I think it's, uh, I want to say it's eclipse.nasa.gov if this is uh, coming out before the... 10 a.m. Pacific time that this starts. You can check out that link or just Google NASA Eclipse. You should get a live feed. Uh, it's actually pretty cool. It's starting off with a uh, with a view from one of the planes at my center that I work at at Armstrong, and then it'll continue to go across various NASA assets throughout the country as it follows it all the way across. Uh, so that's pretty cool. That's going on today, or it already happened today, or it happened earlier in the week depending on when you're listening. I hope you got a chance to check it out and that you looked at it safely with uh, proper glasses or through pinhole cameras or other various uh, applications of not destroying your eyeballs uh, and that it was cool. I myself will be checking it out tomorrow as long as I remember to step outside when it happens. But uh, So that's awesome. But other things to know today in space. In 1965, the Gemini 5 was launched. In 1972, the OAO-3 was launched, and in 2002, the first Atlas V rocket launched. If you're interested in finding out any more information, more details about these things and what they are, you can check out our Facebook page, A Dash of Science. Uh, that's facebook.com slash dash of science, and you can read more things. We'll have links uh, on, on that information that you can check out. Or you can do what I did and go to theyearinspace.com, where you can order a desktop calendar at the beginning of each year that'll give you some interesting uh, information on the year in space and, and what happened on each particular day in history. Uh, there's also some cool little uh, notes about other things going on uh, over the course of the year, missions that are expected to turn out, you know, that kind of stuff. So... But yeah, so other than that, uh, this week I am talking with a molecular biologist on the concept and idea and theory of evolution. So we're going to talk about some things that uh, a lot of people kind of misunderstand or misquote about the idea. And it's kind of interesting that we did this because just the other day, Tim Allen on his Twitter account posted the question, if we evolved from apes, why are there still apes? And that is the perfect question to start off this episode with because we actually uh, had recorded this before that tweet came out. Uh, and we kind of address the the false premise that is the reason why you can't answer that question. So uh, let's go ahead and go to the first part of the show, and we'll talk about my guest and what his background is. Hey, everyone. This is Chris. I am here with uh, Gorchen Kureshipi. Is, that's right, correct? I practiced it. I think I'm good. Yeah, you are. You're good. <laughs> All right. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm good. It's a Sunday morning, so with not much plan going ahead, I'm in a pretty good space. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, it's always hard to get a uh, time scheduled with people that are such a, a drastic difference in in time. So I appreciate you uh, coming in on a Sunday morning for me. Uh, not a problem. That's what weekends are for, right? Uh, there you go. So let's get started by just talking a little bit about you first. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what your background is? Yeah, sure. So I'm a molecular biologist. 
Um, that's a pretty broad field. Uh, I studied at a university local to me, Curtin University. Uh, the degree was molecular genetics, and that focuses more on the genetic engineering side of things. Oh, excellent. So what kind of got you interested in that? So when I, I guess my first foray into microbiology as a whole, um, not just bacteria, but biology at a smaller level was a book, Disgusting Digestion, I read when I was 11. It was kind of targeted for kids and how your body works. And that kind of started me on that path. And then at that point, I knew I wanted to do uh, microbiology with bacteria. And then being exposed to genetics in high school kind of shifted that to molecular genetics. Okay. So was it was there ever uh, any major other things that you wanted to do that you kind of went back and forth? Or was it pretty much once you got on this path, this is this was it? Once I was kind of on this path, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, you, I kind of undenied a little bit between molecular genetics lab medicine, which is a more typical medical research approach, um, and, as well as frontline care. Uh, but I ultimately decided that research was kind of where I wanted to be. Okay. Yeah, I can understand that. I've gone kind of back and forth myself with the difference between, you know, engineering and research. So it's a hard decision and, and you know, there's benefits to both sides. So what is it that, uh, you know, you do now in your current field? Yeah. So at the moment I am, for lack of a better word, I'm a genetic engineer. So the gene splicing you were talking about in previous episodes, that's pretty much what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Specifically <laughs> right now, I'm in more of a, uh, um, I'm more of a quality control side of that. Okay. And how long have you been doing that? Uh, for about two years, but this is also something that I did during my honors, although this is obviously more of a formalized approach. Okay. And so how would you say your background relates to the topic of today's show, which is evolution and, and misconceptions thereof? Yeah, so that's that's a good question. It seems like the, the two aren't one and the same. But for you to have an understanding of uh, genetic engineering and be able to actually engineer a genome, you have to understand how one works. And when you understand how one works at that level, it's impossible to forget about evolution and those natural mechanisms that occur. Right, right. And is there, I guess, how much of your schooling, I guess, concentrated on the evolution as a whole and how much of it is just studying kind of similar mechanics i guess well the for you to splice a gene you have to use the cellular mechanisms that are in place and being used all of the time by all organisms so it's kind of for you to understand those mechanisms and utilize those tools effectively you understand how they have to work normally it, it's going it's going from something uh like grand to small, and you can't do the small unless you understand the big. Gotcha. Okay. So in your line of work, uh, what are kind of some common questions that you've seen, uh, one related to the work that you do, and and, and maybe uh, a little bit into evolution stuff that you've seen where people just have a completely you know wrong understanding of the topic? I think that the main misconception that presents itself as questions is that um, – the genome is a static uh, thing and that the things, the physical presentations of the genome or the phenotype are one-to-one -to, -one to the genotype. Okay. And can, can you kind of explain what that means in case people had, didn't listen to uh, our episode here uh, two weeks ago where we kind of discussed some of that? Sure. So your genome is the genetic code um, that exists in an organism. And that's, if you can think of it as like a blueprint, um, and then the phenotype is the building that is represented in that blueprint. Okay. And what do you ever like correct these people when you see it, or do you just kind of shake your head and move along? Generally, I try to use it um, as a learning opportunity. Uh, that that's also one of the reasons why I chose research. It's kind of it's a little difficult to do research and not be in a teaching position at the same time, and that's particularly why I chose it. Okay. And how is the feedback in that when you when you go to you know use that as a learning situation and, and try and talk to people about their their misunderstandings? Do you ever get like uh, pushback on that or any of the you know oh you're just big pharma you know any ridiculous stuff like that or are people pretty uh, do they receive it pretty well? <laughs> you you get a mixed reaction. I think it, it kind of depends on the the preconceptions a person 
brings into that conversation. Yeah, I've I've gotten the uh, the 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 farmer thing thrown at me a few times, especially because uh, yeah, we make mouse models, so we genetically engineer mice for a disease study. So we get a lot. I get a lot of uh, criticisms from individuals. <laughs> and do you get that in both like in real life and face to face, or is that predominantly like an internet issue? Unsurprisingly, you find it that people online are a little bit more aggressive about it, and people in person tend to come with a more conversational approach about it. It's interesting that that's your answer, because I've found not only that's the same in my field and stuff that I address, uh, it's also other people that I've asked on the show have had the same experience. Uh, any thoughts on why that might be? Sure. I mean, I'll caveat that I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but I would say that when you're online, you aren't, um, you're not directly exposed to all of the facets of a social interaction. So it's easier to not have empathy for the other person. I definitely agree with that. One thing that I find that's interesting is, I mean, and this is all anecdotal here. So let me put that out first is I feel like it used to be when it came to a science people tended to kind of trust that what they're being told by actual scientists was true and that they probably just didn't understand the full realm of it. But nowadays I find that people talk about advanced science issues, you know, that take several years of education or experience to really understand. And because they spent, you know, 10 minutes Googling the topic, they feel like they can have a conversation at the same level as people that are professionals in that field. Would you say that's an issue that you've seen? Yeah, and I would actually double down on that issue with, particularly when you talk about things like genetics and biology, I think it's just kind of, I'm an organism, so therefore I have an informed opinion about how organisms work, whether or not that's actually true. Yeah, I definitely have seen that. So I guess we should kind of start off, since we're going to be talking about evolution today, is maybe in your words, what would you say as simple as possible that evolution is? Evolution is a non-planned change on a genetic level that confers a change at a phenotypic level that's passed down um, through generation. Okay. So I kind of wrote down a, a simplified explanation here of something that I found in my, uh, my Google search because I am not an expert in this field. <laughs> so essentially, it's, it's a change in a her her inheritable characteristics in biological populations over the course of generations. And I think that that's one of the important parts that it, that it focuses on is it needs to be heritable and it happens over time. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's, a, that's certainly a good way to cut it down. All right. One of the things that I hear people talk about a lot that I just, I mean, even me, who's not an expert in it, understand that evolution isn't like, it's not planned. It's not a reaction to the environment per se, like living things have a reaction to stimulus. That's not what this is. You know, it's not planned out and it's not always the best way. And it doesn't mean that there's not things that, you know, happen that serve no benefit. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Evolution is certainly not a thing that's planned out um, either by the organism or by the environment that the organism's in. And a lot of times it's you have two sides to it as well. So you have physical ev um, changes that happen. So whether it might be um, color of a carapace for an insect might confer an advantage, but you also have behavioral changes that can be um, encouraged by genetic predisposition. So you get both of those things are unintentional and it's whatever suits that particular situation for that organism okay a little bit later we're going to talk about some of uh, the different kind of mechanisms of evolution and some other stuff that kind of relates so, uh, so remember this what your statement here because i kind of want to come back to that in a little bit but uh for right now we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll come back with segment two great let's do it I don't care about the state of art Everything I care about is falling apart Don't want to hear about the new design I don't mind if I get left behind Are you a fan of Star Trek? Are you a fan of roleplay? Do you like writing? If you answered yes to all of these questions, check out fed-space.com Federation Space is a Star Trek role-playing game. In the 42 years since the end of the Dominion War, the United Federations of Planets has faced many challenges. 
Through it all, Starfleet stands steadfast in its mission to protect the Federation and explore new worlds. While old enemies wait for the Federation to falter, a mysterious new threat arises, the Krynar Confederation. The Krynar's first introduction, the utter destruction of Bajor. The Federation needs you. Are you ready to answer the call and boldly go where no one has gone before? If the answer is yes, see your local recruiter to sign up at fed-space.com. We're here today talking with Gorchin, a molecular biologist, on the topic of evolution. In our next segment, we get down into talking about phylogenetic trees, uh, splitting up the different species, figuring out their ancestors, etc., etc. So uh, let's go ahead and jump right in and, and, and find that out. All right, welcome back. We're talking about evolution, and this is kind of our quick uh, evolution 101 guide. We talked about what evolution is and a very common misconception and what evolution is not. So I'd like to kind of talk about how we organize things in, in when we're talking about evolution and species and stuff, and because it kind of leads to some of the other misconceptions that we have. Uh, are you familiar with kind of the, uh, uh, what's it called, the phylogenetic tree? Yeah, absolutely. And it's related field bioinformatics. <laughs> so in the tree that we have, a lot of people, you know, have this misconception. I hear it all the time. And there's kind of two misconceptions that stem from one. First of all is people constantly state that evolution says we are descendant of monkeys slash apes slash chimps, etc. Uh, do you see that often? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's it seems semantic to point out the difference, but it's an important difference. Absolutely, because it's really it's a fundamental understanding of how evolution works that leads to this misconception. The second misconception I was talking about that comes from this is if we evolved from monkeys, then why do monkeys still exist? And of course, because we don't, you know, come from monkeys, then that second question is void. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um yeah, so the key thing here is that one organism does become one other organism. That's the whole point of evolution. You don't get kind of monkeys that then turn into humans and then there's no more monkeys. Right. So in looking at the tree, if you actually take some time, you know, you can Google stuff. I think it's Berkeley has a great site on evolution. Uh, you can see that there's these family trees, like I said, that they break down and humans uh are kind of like the equivalent of cousins to like chimpanzees, right? And humans and gorillas are also cousins, but gorillas and chimpanzees are like second cousins in that branch. And if you're going to, I mean, that's kind of a loose association there, but that kind of gets the point across. Uh, would that, does that make sense? Does that sound right? Yeah, that does. And I think the, the key point in understanding of that family tree to, I guess, overcome that misconception is that, yes, we're all cousins, and all of your cousins, if you trace back your family tree at one point, are going to find one common ancestor. And that's what phylogenetics is about. And that's what evolution leads to. Exactly. So if, if people can take one thing from this, is that like uh, gorillas and humans and chimpanzees and I think uh, orangutans are also in there. They, they If you follow them back and you have to go back far enough, it's I think it's a hominidae. Is that sound like a proper pronunciation yeah i think it's hominidae i think there's an extra syllable in there hominidae yeah so one of the problems with not being an expert in this and why i like to bring in other people is i can read things all day long but man there's especially when you get into science if you're not familiar with the terminology you can really butcher <laughs> the, the names of things yeah don't worry people still butcher the names even when they know it <laughs> well that's good to know that uh that i'm not the only one there but you know so th these are all things that are on the primate family tree you know, and there's other family trees that other types of animals, birds, you know, uh, spiders, insects, etc., all come from. And the the key idea of this tree is, if you take any two things, if you follow them back far enough, you will find a common ancestor. But you know, this some of them are pretty far back, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things I want to touch on with um, the phylogenetic trees that is certainly not apparent to a lot of people who look at them is that you structure the phylogenetic trees and you determine the inheritance by looking at a single common gene amongst all those organisms. And how does that work exactly? So 
it, and, and a caveat to that, you might not look at just one gene. Your more robust phylogenetics will look at as much as you possibly can. But you know, there will there are common genes that exist across all organ, organisms. Um, a good example is the one that codes for um, cytochrome P450. It's a key liver enzyme that's really important to lots of organisms functioning. Mm -hmm. um, and if you trace, if you use that particular enzyme, that particular gene, you will look at the changes that exist in all of the organisms at one time point. So let's say the time point would be today. And you compare the differences between them and you say, okay, at one point, the difference between this gene in humans and chimpanzees, that difference would have had to been introduced into one group and not another. So that means at some point, there was another common ancestor between them. Okay. And you could effectively keep doing this and realizing, oh, actually, the humans don't have to change, whereas chimpanzees, um, gorillas, and orangutans all do have this change, which means at some point, those three had a more recent common ancestor than those three plus humans. So it really is just looking at the similarities of the genetic structure, essentially, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And you're looking, um, you're looking, you could be talking about a single base pair change, or you could be talking about um, entire gene families, depending on what your scope of the phylogenetic tree is. So it's interesting that you mentioned in, in a case like that, as an example, that the humans may not have had a change, whereas the other you know, cousins uh, did. And it's something that I've kind of heard that I wanted to just kind of touch on is you hear that, you know, humans are more evolved or, or higher evolved than some of the other things. Is that, is that necessarily true? No, no, not really. <laughs> Sorry to burst everybody's bubble. It, it really kind of comes down to, um, again, this is kind of a, a miss, this leads back to that misconception. You're saying how um, evolution is, continually improving or making an organism more complex whereas those that's also not a true axiom to take yeah definitely and i think that uh it's kind of interesting to note that because we are you know visually very different as far as how we do things i guess and maybe maybe visually isn't the right word but there's some major differences between humans and other primates that essentially are the difference between them still living in trees and us having a technological society so it's very easy to think oh yes we're totally more evolved but when you actually look at it like you said like i mean we're equally evolved in our own you know uh past because we are existing kind of at the same time you know what i mean yeah and that's that's exactly right there is a um and it's also this I guess further to that is the assumption that because we are in alive in the time that we are now, we are more involved than than we were in previous iterations. But there are species of crabs that have effectively ceased evolving for millions of years, and they're still alive today. And do we have any understanding as to why certain species uh, you tend to like quit evolving for at least a time, if not permanently? So evolution is the result of a selection pressure placed upon a genetic change. Okay. So if you have a species of, let's say we've got a small population of flies and they have a predator in their environment and the predator is a visual predator. So one of those in suddenly in that population of flies, one of those flies goes from having a black carapace to a green carapace that makes that fly harder to be detected by the predator and gives it a higher chance of surviving in that environment. So it has more opportunities to create offspring. The end result of that is that you will have more, eventually you'll have more green flies than black flies because the black flies will get genetically outcompeted by the green ones. Okay, that makes sense. So essentially what we're saying is in species that haven't changed in a long time, they've just not had any uh, pressure to change, so to speak. There's been nothing in their environment that's really caused a need or I guess essentially is that kind of what I'm understanding? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you take humans as an example, we come in all shapes, we come in all sizes, different muscle masses, different, you know, if intelligence is purely genetic, for the sake of the conversation, let's say it is different um, intelligence capacities and everything like that, but there's no real selection pressure on humans. And so as a result of that, you get us in all shapes and sizes. Okay. And, you know, I like to say to people that one of the issues that humans have as far as evolving, at least physically, is that there's no longer a need whatsoever to have any sort of adaption to our environment. We 
you know, evolution is something that takes generations to occur, you know, significantly, whereas we're capable of changing our environment within years now. And so I think that that kind of, you know, helps. We have the medical facilities and all that stuff in place where most of the mutations and the genetic changes and diversity that we have no longer provides any significant advantage over anybody else. Yeah, exactly. And the, the key thing about evolution is that the only advantage it cares about is your ability to create offspring. Yeah, and that's uh, something that I think people, you know, that falls right into that people thinking that evolution is somehow nature's intelligent design, so to speak. But in reality, like we said earlier, it's good enough. You know, this is good enough to reproduce and pass on your genes. And that's essentially all that matters, as you said. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And there's a, there's a few things you mentioned that, that I um that are some interesting distinctions that we can draw. So you have evolution and you have adaptation. And on a purely technical level, those two aren't one and the same. So can you explain the difference a little bit? So absolutely. So when you talk about evolution, you're talking about purely genetic changes that result in a, a phenotype change. So we're talking about things that take generations, uh, all the things that we've talked about, things that take a very long time to come about. And adaptation is typically a behavioral change to the environment that could potentially be conferred genetically or it could be conferred um through social structures. That's something that's interesting that I kind of wanted uh, to ask too about the difference between, you know, physical evolution and and social evolution, or I guess, I, I don't know, is that the proper terminology for it? Social evolution when re referring to like behavioral stuff? I think in the field we call it behavioral adaptation, but social evolution has a kind of more umbrella connotation to it. Okay. And would you say that those, that level of, evolution or adaptation does it have the same uh, mechanisms behind it or is it just falling under a branch of a type of evolution or are they really different things so it certainly falls under um, a type of it falls under evolution um, definitely but it's it is on a different molecular clock if you like so a, a prime example is the is the change between like wolves to dogs and that domestication process is actually quite interesting from an evolution point of view. And that is predominantly a behavioral change or? Yeah. And it's actually an interesting example because it's kind of both and the two influencing the other. So there are, uh, obviously we prefer our dogs to be uh, well domesticated and well-trained and so on. The current more or less prevailing theory is that there were wolves who weren't as aggressive and hung around humans or other primates and basically um, lived off their scraps okay and then they were trading uh, humans were trading food for the protective and territorial behavior of the wolves and so they were reinforcing the, the that kind of social connection between um, the wolves and uh, proto dogs if you like providing protection and security and in in return they got food and that makes and sense. So, uh, and it sounds a lot like that's a 100% behavioral thing, but we see with like modern dogs and and uh, breeds and stuff that, I mean, you, if you take a dog away from its parent and treat it differently, you can have different results per se, but it's not going to instantaneously go back to being a wild animal. Absolutely. And this is where um, we're finding that there are genetic predispositions to behavior. Um, and that's that's kind of the other thing that works really well in that uh, theory between proto dogs and the relationship with humans. The ones that were socially that had genetic predisposition to be calmer um, and and have a more, I guess, empathetic personality would actually have been selected for because they got more food and they got more opportunities to breed because they were the humans and the proto dogs were keeping each other safe. Okay. Now we're kind of starting to get into kind of the mechanisms of evolution, but I wanted to take a, a step back real quick. When we were talking about uh, the phylogenetic trees, this is from what I've read is still kind of a hypothesis rather than a theory. Like evolution as a whole is a theory, but some of the mechanics within them aren't necessarily uh, developed enough to be theories yet. Would you say that's accurate? But it's certainly to a point. So the thing about phylogenetic trees is that they are constructed using more or less statistical and mathematical models of genetic change over time. Okay. So depending on how you apply those 
that those statistics and the power that you have behind it and which genes you use and how you effectively go about constructing a phylogenetic tree will drastically change its shape. Okay. And so because of that, um, phylogenetic trees aren't as static as the theory of evolution or aren't as well set in stone as the theory of evolution. Gotcha. And earlier you were talking about kind of tracing back with, with similar, uh, I guess, characteristics or genes to see the common ancestors. Are you involved ever or, or do you remember ever learning about how that kind of stuff is dated, how we tell how long ago that stuff occurred? Yeah, I've, um, that was something we were looking at um, during my university years, and it's been a while since I've looked at it personally. But generally, it's a, it's a combination between how often, uh, as a mathematical model, how often mutations change, or occur rather, and how often they occur and are preserved in, a, in offspring. And then it's a mixture of that, some fossil dating, and so on. Okay, so kind of what you're talking about was more the molecular clock uh, ideal, which requires a lot of uh, extrapolation based on data points, and then the uh, the kind of geological events like measurements of, of fossils in the strata and the sedimentary levels and stuff, and comparing that with geological events, which also requires a lot of uh, uh, extra uh, extrapolation. Um, but there's also radiometric dating, which relies on half-lives and stuff, and that's kind of more of a direct measurement. Uh, did you ever use that particular stuff or, or talk, read about that at all? In, uh, I didn't use it directly because crossing those, uh, for the lack of a better word, crossing those fields of science and using those other data points is how you absolutely go about building incredibly robust phylogenetic trees. But our schooling at the time was more focused on what it actually is and the the science and the methods behind it rather than actually constructing ones for publication okay well, i mean that makes sense it's interesting to know that, like radiometric dating is is definitely a more direct measurement and probably has a higher average accuracy you know whereas these other methods the the process of doing it is is like a an equation essentially where your results are only as good as the data points that you put in, right? So what, would you find that you, was there certain levels of data that you kind of didn't want to do this extrapolation method because the quality of the data or the quantity of the data you had wasn't enough to really ensure, you know, an accurate result? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, another way of looking at um, creating a phylogenetic tree is giving somebody directions. If and you use so when you give somebody directions, you'll say you'll take a left at this landmark, you'll go down that way for about ten minutes walking, and then you'll take a right at this other landmark, and you kind of take a a roughly similar approach when you build a phylogenetic tree. You'll use carbon or radiometric dating of fossils as those landmarks, and you say between this landmark and that landmark, these molecular changes happened. Okay. That makes sense. So, so when you're talking about creating a phylogenetic tree and you don't have enough data, a good example is um, we're looking at a particular gene that was shared between a whale, a hippo, and a pig. And we basically using the same methods and processes of purely, purely from a mathematical and statistical point of view, we had to determine which one was actually closer related to the other. Okay. And surprisingly, we found that the pig was closer related to the whale than it was the hippo. That's really interesting because, you know, we talk about different things in, in like as common ancestors and seeing the changes. So what you're saying is that the whale and the pig had a closer common relative than the whale and the hippo? When you're only looking at that one gene, that's what appeared to have happened. But what is more likely to have happened is that um, there was a common ancestor amongst all three, and then the whale split off, and then the common ancestor for the pig and the hippo also split off. However, there was no selection pressure for that gene in the whale and no selection pressure for that gene in the pig, but there was one for the hippo. Okay, and this kind of goes back to why you have to take multiple points. You can't just look at this one thing 
and and create an entire accurate tree from it. Absolutely, and it's it's kind of it, clearly the exercise there was to demonstrate to us the limitations of phylogenetic trees, and in in isolated cases you can't. But to clarify, you're not going to see those kind of half-assed phylogenetic trees in publications. Definitely, and I think this is one thing to note here is a lot of people that like to pick at at scientific findings in general, be it from evolution or climate change or whatever, any of the stuff that, that often gets debated is they find these one little examples like these and they cherry pick them out and they say, aha, see, it was wrong. The whole thing's garbage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a, I'm pretty sure there's a logical fallacy for that, but I can't remember what that one's called. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's definitely right. And I'll have to ask my friend Rose when we record about cognitive biases and, and logical fallacies, what she thinks on that. But uh, so we kind of talked about you know, the dating process, uh, I, and I had taken a step back, but let's get back to where we where we were when we were talking about, like, we started really getting into mechanisms. So there's, there's several different mechanisms, which I think are called uh, different forms of descent with modification, correct? Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. Okay, so evolution occurs when there's a change in gene frequency within a population over time. That's what we've stated. Uh, and these differences are heritable, and it results in in long-term change uh i'm not sure how accurate that is would is it a lot necessarily a long-term change um long term compared to a human lifespan yes long term compared to other evolutions not necessarily okay and so another thing that we like to kind of talk about when talking about evolution is is examples of what are and are not so if we have like a drought and there's a shortage of food and water for several years you know, you'll start to see animals shrinking in size. They're not as big as they normally would be. Uh, so is that an issue of evolution per se? No, um, but you are touching on some actually quite interesting things that aren't um, as apparent when you're talking about evolution in a clean slate. Okay. So if you take a, a population, let's say of 100 animals, and you take, you randomly sample 11 of those animals and you physically isolate them and create a new population you'll get what's called the founder effect all right so if that group of 11 animals is not genetically in terms of statistics is not genetically representative of the larger group you will have genetic drift occurring in that smaller group and that's essentially because you've taken out this smaller group who don't necessarily have the same traits etc of the larger group so will that secondary population take on a different evolutionary path than the main group they were pulled from? Yeah, potentially. If you have, if in that secondary group you have a negative trait, say they, um, their blood doesn't clot as well, eventually over time, let's say you picked all 11 animals that none of their blood clots and you picked, and that was just the 11 that got isolated, eventually that species will become It'll become a new species, and their blood just won't clot. And if you have an entire species or population with something like that, I mean, that doesn't sound good. It sounds like they would be more prone to extinction. Absolutely. So that's an example of um, effectively a negative trait being selected for because all of the other uh, animals that made up that cohort were removed, so they were selected against. And then you got 11 that, had, that couldn't clot their blood, and through a... Geographic change, whether it be um, a river drought or a, a lack of food, was effectively selected for because of the founder effect. Okay. Well, that's interesting to know and kind of a good example of why it's so important to have genetic diversity. I mean, it kind of seems like it increases our chances of survival as a species that way. Absolutely. And one of the other mechanisms you might see a play in one of those small ones is epigenetics. And what is epigenetics? So it, your genome is not... Not 100% of your genome is being coded by 100% of your cells all the time. Okay. Epigenetics is at the layer above your genome, That's and it's effectively which genes are being used and which ones are not being used. And is that different from expression? Epigenetics can cause different levels of expression. Okay. So you get this, it's, epigenetics is the difference between a skin cell and a liver cell. It's a difference between a hair cell and an, uh, an eye cell, for example. But you can also see those changes happening on an organism level. And it's something that's really interesting that happens during periods of famine um, in populations is that their epigenetic levels 
uh, their expression as a result of their epigenetics changes because of a year or two of famine. And then those children that were um, conceived during that period of famine will have different epigenetic expression compared to the parents or children's that were conceived during periods of feasting. Is this the same kind of mechanisms that work in, in populations that are hermaphroditic, like say fish that, you know, will change genders from male to female when there's not enough of a specific gender around? Absolutely. That's the perfect example of epigenetic change. Are you, do you have a good understanding of what it is in the environment that causes that change? Cause that seems like there's more, intelligence behind the genetics than i would think would be yeah and and that is um that's where this molecular stuff comes into play because a lot of the times you will see um changes happening at an individual cell level as a result of its immediate cellular environment okay and so and so cells a lot of the time well 100 percent of the time they're communicating with all the other cells around them and they're basically telling each other the job that they're doing and the job that the other cells are doing, but they're doing that using um, molecular interaction. So it might be physical cell-to-cell -cell contact, or it might be um, an extracellular um, scaffold furniture, if you like, that they've put in place around them that tells them the job that they need to do and what they can do. Okay, that makes sense. So we're going to take a break here real quick, and then when we come back, we'll talk about the mechanisms of change in more detail, some more misconceptions, and I'll go over some questions from listeners that posted on Facebook. All right, sounds good. I don't care about the state of art. Everything I care about is falling apart. Don't want to hear about the new design. I don't mind if I get left. If you're enjoying this episode and you'd like to ensure there are more great episodes with great content for you to enjoy, you can support us at patreon.com slash dash of science. There's numerous levels in which to support us at, and the money from this is used to help keep the hosting going, uh, to get better equipment, and to hopefully uh, be able to allow me to travel to conventions occasionally in the future and maybe speak with people one-on-one -on -one as well as uh, equipment in order to do mobile recording. So uh, again, if you would like to support the podcast, that's patreon.com slash dash of science. We're talking with Gorchin about evolution and kind of some common misconceptions about the subject. So we're going to get into some questions from listeners, uh, and then we'll have the rest of the interview uh, in the next episode. All right, so let's get back into it. I just want to capture some questions from listeners real quick that I have post down. And let's do it. So River says, they say that because insects have such a short lifespan, and live and die so quick that they have the best chance of mutating or evolving. Yet mammals apparently went through incredible metamorphosis and yet a common mosquito that was embedded in amber from over 200 million years ago. And the bug hasn't changed a single bit. And it's the same nasty pesky mosquito all over the world. Why didn't they morph and evolve differently? Well, I think when they actually looked at that specific mosquito in amber, at a genetic level, it was quite drastically different. And it kind of touches on, um, oh, and mosquitoes are different all over the world. You get lots of different types of species of uh, mosquito. A, a relevant example is that not all of them are capable of transmitting malaria and other mosquito-bound um, diseases. But basically, the mosquito is a very small and it's a very efficient thing at doing what it does. and it's very well fitted to its environment. Okay. So to sum up the kind of the part of this is one, the preference to the question isn't exactly accurate. And two, there's been no real need for, as we called a, uh, uh, selection pressure on this creature because it's so well fitted to its environment. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. There are, um, plenty of other insects that have undergone, um, some pretty drastic changes and some of them that have effectively given up changes halfway through because they've lost selection pressures. All right. I think that's good. Uh, so Kelsey has a question that we kind of answered uh, in the form of gene splicing, but we haven't really answered it in kind of the idea of evolution. 
So I'll ask it again here and we can kind of discuss it. She says, what is the actual likelihood of genetic human mutations? Uh, excuse me. What is the actual likelihood of genetic human mutations resulting in X-Men like powers? Or is that all strictly fantasy? Uh, I love this question. It's a good question. Um, the Unfortunately, the answer is much less good than the question. It's uh, it's very unlikely. If we're going to stick with the X-Men example, um, you might be able to better answer this than I can, Chris, but I'm pretty sure a lot of them break the laws of physics. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with that. But if you want to, you know, let's, I guess, tone those mutations down a little bit and let's talk about something like muscle mass. Um, so your muscle mass is uh, limited by uh, a, pro a gene called myostatin. We're not entirely sure how exactly it works, but there is a species of cow. They're called double-muscled cows. And as the name implies, they have exactly double the amount of muscle mass to other species of cows. Mm -hmm. Which, And you might go, well, that's great. That's so much more beef per cattle. Why, don't, why doesn't every farmer have double-muscled cows? The reason is because, because the calves and the fetuses have twice the amount of muscle, um, you have to perform a C-section. Okay. to get the, the cattle out. And that becomes, well, economically ludicrously expensive. But when you are when you carry that on through humans, you know, if you get a human that's double muscled, there are so many things that you have to be aware of and careful of that it's more likely to be a condition rather than an advantage. Your bones are only so strong. Your skin can only stretch so much. So for there to be, you know, things like super strength, you have to have changes at so many different genetic levels and they all have to be selected for. So I think the likelihood is unfortunately non-existent. I'd agree with that. And if we go ahead and just remove all of the ridiculous, you know, X-Men, you know, superhuman type abilities that, as you say, completely violate the laws of physics, there's also ones that not only just aren't economically possible, but they aren't biologically uh, capable of being supported. So there's there's a limit, for example, of how large organisms can be based off of the density and size of bones and that ratio, right? Uh, and then there's, there's other things that, uh, you know, a lot of these things, we talk about how evolution requires that that... Thing somehow allows that organism to have a better chance of reaching the point of reproduction and reproducing and transferring those along. And I think a lot more of these uh, not only don't do that, but also as we see with kind of some of the things in even the, the comic books and stuff where socially they probably have a less chance of reaching an age of reproduction or of finding a mate that would be willing to, you know, mate with a uh, human frog or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I know what you're getting at. Um, but yeah, you can, if you talk about like the, the ability to, to climb on walls and things like that, you're, that's, it comes down to basically chemistry of why a lot of organisms can do that. And you would have to drastically increase the surface area of your hands and feet for humans to be able to do the same as another example. Yeah, actually, there's a really perfect example. And there's actually an engineering, uh, uh, what do you call it? I, not really experiment, but practice, I guess you can go through based off of Archimedes law uh, about buoyancy and like the water bug and how it can walk on water and trying to develop some sort of method for humans to do that. And it really comes down to like so many things is size, you know, there are certain uh, things that work physically on a micro scale that just don't work on the size of humans. Like elevators and space elevators. <laughs> that is a good example also. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's, um, yeah, that's, that's, that, it's it's interesting um, some of the things that we could potentially come up with and and some of the things that we can't, which is unfortunate. But I guess a fun fact about buoyancy and when you're talking about muscle mass, you know, people are just like, oh, organisms can be only be so big, and you're like, well, there's a reason whales are in water. Yeah, that is a good point. Buoyancy reduces a lot of the stress um, of 
that a normal organism like that would face. And that's why beach whales generally don't do as well as they potentially could. Um, and, and the interesting thing about buoyancy is that and more of a tangential fun fact rather than anything else, but the, the human brain and brains in general are incredibly soft and pliable um, organs that they have the texture of like a water balloon that if you place it on a table under its own weight, it'll deform and cause damage. So the only reason your brain can actually function is because it's floating in fluid. It's actually buoyant. Right. So essentially the point we're getting at is there are, but we could probably keep going on how many reasons there are that this sort of evolution is just not reasonably going to happen. Yeah. For, for there to be a, drastic change in one thing, say strength or size, there has to be a drastic change in the rest of the organism to accommodate that. Okay. So moving on to our next question, Brian has suggested that we talk about the difference between micro and macro evolution and also touch on how religion and science are not mutually exclusive. I think we sufficiently talked about the second half of that, but uh, so what's the difference between micro and macro evolution? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that there is a difference. I would say that microevolution, um, if you're talking about things that happen on an individual organism or a very small population level, is actually what drives macroevolution. So you see speciation events and things like that. Okay. So um, what I have just to kind of define a difference between the two is micro is small scale like you're talking about an adaption to a local climate or you know a a single population as as you said but in this case in a single population we're talking about uh that population is a species rather than uh geographically separated whereas on a macro scale we're looking more at uh like clade level uh stuff like that i guess so looking at not looking at homo sapiens but looking at you know the 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 clade that we evolved from if that makes sense would that be an accurate description um i'm not sure if that distinction is um is one that you can actually it's not a, i'm not sure if that's a line that you can draw because one of the things that we were talking about earlier is all every all of the species within a clade originally had a common ancestor so all of the different species were originally one species so at some point that species had sufficient microevolution events or pathways that it speciated more than once. And so at some point, the discussion of macroevolution becomes a retrospective only view of a series of microevolutions, if we want to stick with those distinctions. Okay, that makes sense to me. So that's kind of all the questions that I've I've been given by our, uh, our listeners to kind of discuss, but I kind of wanted to put this out there, my understanding of questions of evolution that are still being discussed. I'm going to list them here, and when I'm done, if, if you want to disagree with one or add more, that's fine. So, sure. first question that's still being researched is, is evolution a slow, steady process overall? Or does it only occur in leaps and quick jumps? Next, oh, unless you want to actually let's do this individually. Do you have anything to say on that? Yeah, I would say the answer is it depends on the mutations that have that have occurred and the number and intensity of the selection pressures. If you have, if we start talking about epigenetics and gene duplications on an evolutionary scale, you could get some relatively rapid leaps and quick jumps. If you talk about um, bacteria, where one strain will spontaneously develop antibiotic resistance and then proceed to share that to all of the other strains in its environment, that could be something that happens in a matter of days or weeks versus decades or centuries. Um, so the answer is evolution happens at both rates and it primarily depends on the environment and the selection pressures and the organism's capability to mutate. Okay. So the next question we have is, and these aren't necessarily questions directed at you. If you, if you have an answer, please, by all means, give them. But the kind of ideas of things that are in the process of being researched right now within evolution, one of those questions is why are some clade variations diverse and others seem sparse? Yeah. So one of the things that, 
I didn't quite touch on recently, but clades are the group of trees in a phylogenetic tree. So when you're talking about a clade being diverse or sparse, it's effectively how far back you have to go for a common ancestor. Because once you start including more common ancestors and you look at clades at that level, suddenly every clade is diverse and you could theoretically get to a point where the clade includes all organisms that exist on Earth today. So the reasons some are diverse and some are sparse is basically depends on the um, ability for so we were talking about those genetic changes earlier, things like genetic drift, migration events, founder effects, and things like that. If one ancestor has gone through a large number of geographic distribution and isolations, you will see a very diverse um, clade. And if a particular species has gone through a large number of um, and, and heavy selection pressures that and they've also haven't been able to share and normalize their gene distribution, you'll see a diverse clade. If a species hasn't had that, you won't see a diverse clade. Okay. Uh, lastly, actually, I, I lied. Uh, third to last, or second to lastly, how does evolution produce new and complex futures? I don't want to state this as a question that scientists are confused about, so much as it is something that is actively being researched and ideas and, and solutions are being created. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. And I think um, that is actually a very interesting uh, field of research. Some of the things that we talked about, like gene duplication, um, repeats and things like that, could absolutely produce new and new features. And over time, they could become complex. Um, one of the things that that we sort of hit indirectly with complex features and new ones separately is that the two things could be the same. It could be that you get a whole host of genes duplicated for a small organ, and then you get a second organ that starts drifting in a different direction. It starts picking up new functionality and over time will become more complex if the selection pressures require it to do so. Okay. And now lastly, unless you have more to add is are there any trends in evolution? And if they are, what are they? What exactly do you mean by trends? In what way? You know, that's a kind of a broad question, isn't it? I would, I would interpret that to mean, is there a... I know I'm trying to say how best to say it. If you look at different branches of evolution across different species uh and stuff is there a trend to evolve any sort of similar mechanisms i guess does that make sense yeah so you're saying two um entirely different species in totally different environments will trend towards the same um set of traits or features yes i would say that depends entirely on the environment I think the only trend that you could say with any certainty exists is a trend to fit the environment via natural selection. So any apparent trends that may appear as far as traits is you would say is probably more a function of some similarity in environment. I would say so. I think the, the, you know, if you want to go to real right down fundamental chemistry and as wide as all of the organisms that are complex, have um, oxygen-based um, chemical respiration is because oxygen works really well in chemical respiration, and it's a very efficient element to do so with. All right, that that sounds good to me. Uh, I kind of want to give you a little bit uh, a time here at the end to discuss any personal info you have, if you have any contact information that people could reach out to you if you want, uh, no pressure to do so, or if you have any URLs or links or even just ideas of sites or good resources that people can look at or, you know, anything like that, kind of plug yourself or anything that you want. Uh, good free advertising. Exactly. Um, no, uh, at, at the moment, I don't really have any um, like public projects going on at the moment, um, but if 
yeah, if you want to just extend my contact information to all of your viewers, and if they've got any questions, feel free to reach out to me at any time, and I'm happy to have a chat, whether it's voice or email or something, and yeah, I'm happy to teach. Excellent. Oh, well, I thank you for taking the time here. We actually got a crap ton more content that I uh, originally planned to the point that instead of trying to edit down to fit my normal 60 minute or so uh, episode, I think I might just split this into two separate episodes. So uh, not a bad thing. So I, I appreciate your time and your uh, your expertise on this subject. And hopefully we can have you on again for uh, another field that you're, uh, I guess, familiar with. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. I had a really great time. Hopefully we can do this again. All right. You have a good night. Thanks, Chris. See you. I don't care about the state of art. Everything I care about is falling apart. Don't want to hear about the new design. I don't mind if I get left behind. Hey everybody, you've been listening to A Dash of Science. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode on evolution. Please be sure to tune in next week where we uh, finish up the last half of this interview I had and we talk more in depth about the methodologies of evolution. Uh, it was just too much of a uh, good content there to try to edit down to an hour, so I split it into actually two hour episodes. So yeah, we'll be back next week with the uh, rest of that. If you enjoyed this show, you can support us at patreon.com slash dash of science. Make sure you check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash dash of science. You can check me out on Twitter at physicist Chris, or you can watch our live streams or recordings of our past live streams at twitch.tv slash physicist Chris. That's all for this week. Catch you next time. As always, the song on this episode was State of the Art by Brad Sucks. If you like his music, you can support him by visiting bradsucks.net.